or young people of third grade and younger are being dismissed right back here to my left, your right. Psalm 139, if you would please, in your Bibles. We will read the entirety of Psalm 139 to remind us of the context. We have covered the first half of the text last week, and we'll be covering the second half of Psalm 139 this morning, but I would like for us to read it, its entirety uh, this morning. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1, God speaks through His servant David, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts, of my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I, can, I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. For you have formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God, how great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them as my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Father, we, help, we ask for your help this morning. As we approach this, your word, we are humbled before it as the word of the living God. We pray, Lord, that you would use it in our hearts this morning to change us, to mold us, to shape us, and that we would worship and submit to what we behold in your word. You are a wondrous God. We've acknowledged that in singing this morning. May we acknowledge it with our hearts as we yield to your word. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. This week, my wife was looking at something online. Uh, we were looking at some options on maybe taking a little family trip or something. She looked at, at something, and um, about three minutes later, I was on Facebook, and I coincidentally got an ad for the exact same thing that my wife had been looking at on her device. What an odd coincidence, huh? 
<laughs> no, there are these algorithms out there that are constantly monitoring everything that you're doing. They even know who you're related to and what they're doing online. And these algorithms say, ah, they might be interested in this. And so uh, here I am on my Facebook. I get on my Facebook a few minutes later, and it is advertising the very same thing, not that I had even looked at, but that's something my, my wife had looked at. As technology increases and these algorithms grow smarter and smarter and learn more about you, do you ever feel like you're being watched? <laughs> I mean, do you ever feel like somebody is kind of always watching over your shoulder and, and knows what you're doing? I even had someone, I don't know, if that, 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 I have a little trouble believing this, but I, I even uh, had someone tell me that, that they were just talking about something and coincidentally they got a Facebook advertisement. I don't know if it's, it's gotten quite there yet, but it almost seems like like the internet knows what you're thinking. And, and it seems like maybe even something pops up on your feed and you're like, oh, I hadn't thought about that, but yes, I am interested. So it's, it's almost like the internet knows before you know that you're interested in something. Well, guess what? What the internet knows, what the algorithms know, what the, what the artificial intelligence knows is, is only the tip of the iceberg of what God knows about you. You see, all of those things that they have to pay, pay people to develop this software and to monitor you and to, and to put all those algorithms together, that if you're interested in this and someone else is interested in this, that maybe you'll be interested in this, that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the infinite knowledge the intimate way in which God knows all about us. He literally does know before we even consciously think something that we might. This is what we were introduced to last week when we consider the first portion of Psalm 139. We're seeing the psalmist who is talking about the infinite characteristics of God, the attributes of God, and we're learning that you and I are to worship God because of His, uh, because of his infinite attributes. You and I are to worship God because of His infinite attributes. So, from last week, we, we saw some of the attributes of God treated in the first 12 verses. The first attribute that we saw was about God's omniscience, that He knows everything. And because He knows everything, He knows everything about you. You see, the psalmist doesn't leave God's attributes at kind of this, this high theoretical level. He brings them to bear on who you and I are. And so, so we say, well, God, God knows everything, but the psalmist is applying it, and he's saying, because he knows everything, he, he knows about me. He knows about you. And that was really the lesson that we saw in the first six verses. But then he goes on in verses 7 through 12 to talk about God's omnipresence. That is to say that God is everywhere. We cannot escape God's presence. And he goes through this line by line as he talks about the farthest reaches of the earth, the farthest reaches of the planet, even beyond the planet. If we go to heaven, if we go to hell, God is there. God is everywhere. But because of that, the psalmist is comforted by the fact that not only is God everywhere, but that means wherever you go, he is with you. It's very personal for the psalmist. 
Not just God is everywhere as a, as a sterile, dry statement that is in some dusty theology book, but for the psalmist it is intensely personal. That means God is always with me. God is always with you. And so then we come to today's portion of the text where we see God's care for us. His attention to us, His power on our behalf, which extends even to the smallest detail. And in fact, it extends not only to the smallest detail, but it has extended even to the smallest detail before you were self-conscious. Before you even knew you existed, God was paying close attention to the smallest detail about you. God's omnipotence, His, his all-power means that He personally cares for you and for me. Let's look at it in the text of Scripture, verse 13. The psalmist David praises God. He says, you formed my inward parts. You covered me. This word covered is used in the Hebrew language of one that that weaves a garment together or knits a garment. It's almost as if the psalmist is saying, "You, you wove me together in my mother's womb, even my, my inward parts. Now understand, of course, that, that, that David is talking in a historical context where there, there's much that we know now about our inward parts, but yet there are some things that, that even physicians can't fully explain why our body works the way it does. And not only does God understand and He knows why our inward parts work the way that they do, He actually formed them. He wove them together while we were yet unborn. You formed my inward parts. You you knit me together in my mother's womb. Verse 14. And so David responds, I will praise you. Because of this great truth that God is all-powerful, that God has leveraged His power on our behalf to knit us together, to form us, to make us, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows well. David then delves further in verse 15, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. And skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. This idea of the lowest parts of the earth was, a, was an ancient Jewish expression, uh, an idiomatic expression for the womb. And so again, he's still talking about this, this pre-born condition that, 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 that even when I was yet unborn, even when I was yet in my mother's womb, you did a skillful work of creating you ever consider the fact that life is a delicate balance? Everything about you is, is hanging on a thread. If, you're, if your pH goes up too much or it goes down too much or, you're, or certain, certain chemicals in your blood go up too much or, or down too much or, or, or your heart just misfires just a little bit, uh, I mean, the, the slightest imbalance can be fatal. The skill that God has expressed about Himself 
in creating us, in giving us life, in, in breathing into us the breath of life is something that the psalmist praises God for. We are skillfully wrought. And in fact, is if you may have health struggles, you may have difficulties, there may be, may be maladies that plague you, but the fact is that if you are alive right now and hearing my voice, you are a delicate balance that is being held together by the skill of God. So the psalmist praises God for this. He says in verse 16, Now your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written. What were written? The days fashioned for me. God knows your life from the beginning to the end. He knows about the day of your birth, and He knows even about the day of your death. He knows every day of your life. Nothing surprises Him or catches Him off guard. Nothing escapes His control. He says, and when as yet there were none of them, none of what? Well, it goes back to the previous phrase, does it not? None of the days. So, so before my first day, before birth, my days were numbered. God knew about every day. There's a beautiful story published in the New York Times this week about a little boy named Charlie Royer, who is 17 months old now. A quote from the New York Times, June 24th. Charlie Royer, 17 months old, has such a swift, strong kick that putting on a pair of pants, putting a pair of pants on him can turn into a wrestling match. But his mother doesn't mind, far from it. Lexi Royer said, Things that might annoy other parents, I'm so thankful for. This child who crawls around the house chasing a Yorkie named Bruce proudly hauls himself up against the couch, which he wasn't expected to do. You see, before he was born, doctors pre pre uh, predicted that he would be paralyzed from the waist down. Prenatal testing had found that he had a severe spinal defect called spina bifida. And because of this, he would probably need breathing tubes, feeding tubes, leg braces, crutches, a wheelchair, and lifelong treatment for fluid buildup in his brain. But his parents opted for a, a cutting-edge experimental surgery where he actually had surgery completed on him in utero. They, 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 they conducted an operation on him while he was still in his mother's womb. And because they were able to treat it so early in his formation, this young man who is predicted to never walk is learning to walk. He, he's strong and, and he's healthy and his parents are, are celebrating. Now the interesting thing is that the New York Times told of this story back when the surgery happened numerous months ago while he was still, while he was still in utero. This, this, this cutting-edge surgery was performed in the New York Times reported on this little baby that they called a baby, still in the womb. And in the same edition of the New York Times, the same day that they reported about this little baby who was having surgery in the womb, they ran another story in which they referred to an unwanted child as the fetus. It was expendable. In the same edition. Well, we see God's attitude towards the unborn 
in this passage. Verses 13 through 16 affirm God's creative care, His creative work, but there's really, uh, there's another truth here that, that I think is of great importance because it is under assault by our society, namely the sanctity of life before birth. You see, this is, this is based on what is called in the Latin imago dei. You've heard me refer to it before, the image of God, that each person is a facsimile of the creator, that each person bears the image of God. So notice how the psalmist points this out. We see here that God forms the smallest aspect of a child while, while he was still, verse 13, what? In his mother's womb. The Bible clearly indicates that God knows and regards us as uniquely human, even while we're still unborn. He says, he says you formed my inward parts. You, you covered me, you knitted me in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. In the book, they are all written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Notice carefully that the Bible recognizes a person's humanity, not at some arbitrary marker, a certain trimester or or viability, or, or even at birth does that become a person. No, verse 15 says, when I was made in secret, before, before a woman even knows that she's pregnant, God sees that child as a child. And notice, please, further that this image of God is based on God's creative act. Verse 14, what does he say? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Let's just be very clear. The value of a human life is not based on his or her gender, ethnicity, ability, or lack of ability, or even whether someone, quote-unquote, wants him or her. The value of human life is based on God's work of giving life. And so this affirmation of the image of God, this, this personhood of every person, if you will, from the moment of conception goes all the way back to Genesis 1.27, when man was made in the image of God. You remember this? Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. Mankind is unique and special in the creative order of God, because he bears the image of God. We then see it again. Jacob and Esau in Genesis 25 are spoken of as two nations in their mother's womb. We see affirmed in the Old Testament law. Isaiah and Jeremiah acknowledge it in respect to their calling. Job recognizes it. Numerous psalms affirm it. Even, even the birth announcements of John the Baptist and Jesus hint at this reality. One theologian has put it this way. The doctrine of the image of God in man is of the greatest importance in theology. For that image is the expression of that which is most distinctive in man and in his relation to God. The fact that man is in the image of God distinguishes him 
from the animal and every other creature. And so we've seen here in the scriptures, we see it numerous places in the scriptures, that God values human life even before it is born. So our views are very clearly informed by God's truth, not by our own experience. However, for our family, this is not a sterile moral theory. It is deeply personal. You see, we have two adopted daughters. Um, Now, we have made the choice as a family to not talk extensively about the circumstances surrounding their conception, but suffice it to say, the fact is that if the arguments of the pro-abortion movement had been heated, neither of them would be alive. Fortunately, in each case, their birth mother made the courageous choice that life was of value and that they had the right to live. And that right was not eliminated by her inability to parent them. It was not eliminated because of harsh life circumstances. The right to life was not even set aside because of the evil actions of their birth father that led to their pregnancy. And so let me just say very quickly, many will argue um, for the value of life based on all kinds of things. And they'll set aside certain exceptions, right? Well, no abortion except in the cases of, you've you've heard this before, right? So let's just be very clear. Rape, for example, as evil as it is, as horrific as it is, is not biblical justification for abortion. That child is created in the image of God. That child has intrinsic value, despite who her biological father is, is not a justification for a death sentence. And so, for us, as I said, you know, the the, the principles are clear in Scripture, the truth is clear in Scripture, it is personal for us, and we actually rejoice that God has allowed us to parent two girls who are precious in His sight and have the right to live just as your children and every child that God has given the gift of life. And so I say all of this not to, not to harshly condemn anyone who has had an abortion. The fact is that there is forgiveness at the foot of the cross, just as there is for any other wrong. I say it really not even to make a political point. Certainly there are political implications to it. But this really isn't so much a political issue as it is a moral one. I say this to remind us that life is important to God. It is important to regard life, even pre-born life, as precious and worth protecting. And the culture of death is sinking its deadly fangs into into American society, and this is tragic. It's sad. And so Christians must remember Certainly that the need of the hour is the gospel. It's not social reform. But by the same token, as much as is in our power, we should protect the innocent and not yield to the lies of the pro-abortion movement. The psalmist celebrates the fact that God knew him, 
knew him intimately well, even before his mother knew him. And in so doing, he affirms the preciousness of life and that God has worked on behalf of him and each one of us to give us the gift of life. He personally cares for each of us. We see in the final section of this psalm that he deserves our worship. And so this is really the, the response phase. We've seen that God, God knows everything. He's omniscient. And so because he knows everything, he knows about you and he knows about me intimately well. He, he's everywhere. We cannot escape him. He's all-powerful. He personally cares for us. And so, so what is the response? And verses 17 and following really give us the psalmist's response that, that he deserves our worship. Theologians categorize God's attributes by speaking of communicable and non-communicable attributes, Right? As they're just big fancy terms that mean if something is communicable, for example, a disease is communicable, you can catch it, right? Well, a communicable attribute of God is, is one that we should seek to emulate. So, for example, God is truth, and so we should be truthful. God is love, and so we should be loving. God expresses mercy, and we should express mercy, and justice, and on and on the list goes. Those are communicable attributes. There's also a category of non-communicable attributes. God knows everything. That is not something you can emulate. Right? You can get smarter, you can learn some things, but you can never, you can never mimic God's all-knowing. And so these infinite attributes of God, he knows everything, he is everywhere, he is all-powerful, those are, those are attributes that we respond in worship, in awe. No matter how much we learn, we haven't even scratched the surface of God's infinite knowledge. No matter how well you multitask, you will never be every place at one time. Instead, we stand in awe of those non-communicable attributes, and that is really exactly how David responds. He starts by rejoicing in verses 17 and 18 in God's infinite attributes. Verse, uh, verse 17, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! Or you could say, how precious to me, some of your translations might read, are your thoughts, O God! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. Again, he speaks about this, this infinite, this immeasurability of God's knowledge of him. Now, when we think about God knowing everything, right? You, you, we talked in the introduction about, you know, the internet seems to know a lot about you, and it kind of gives you, you know, makes us a little uneasy, a little scary. And when you think about a God who knows every little deep, dark secret, every thought before it's formed, every word before we say it, we might be tempted to recoil at that. Uh-oh, God knows everything. This is not good. But that's not, the that's not the response of the psalmist. In fact, he rejoices in it. How wonderful, how precious it is to me that, God, you know all my thoughts. And so I would just challenge us not to recoil, not to draw back from this reality of God's intimate knowledge of us, but to lean into it, 
to embrace it. To understand that this is of great comfort to us. That God knows all about us. That He is with us at all times. That He leverages His power on our behalf. What These are things to rejoice in when thought about biblically. So I ask you this morning, how do you worship God? When you encounter in your Bible reading or when you encounter in a song during our time of corporate worship, does your heart take a moment to leap up and say, God, I thank you that you are so far above anything I can understand. You are so much more powerful than anything that I can attain to. And yet you, you care for me. You, you leverage that infinite power, that infinite knowledge, that all presence, you leverage on my behalf. What a joyous thing. The psalmist's heart leaps up in worship. He says, how precious, how wonderful. Do you ever take time to try to, in your mind, plumb the depths of the fact that God knows all? And as you plumb those depths, you don't ever reach the bottom. And at some point, your mind just, just almost explodes with just, I, I'm never going to get wrapped around this. And you respond in thanksgiving. That is worship. That is how the psalmist responds to who God is. Don't pull away from it. Don't, don't pull away from the, from, the all, from the knowledge that we see. The reason that we're tempted to do that is because it makes us vulnerable. We recognize our own inadequacy, our own vulnerability. We even do that on the human level, don't we? I mean, it, 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 when, we, when someone is, is struggling with temptation, or they, are, or they are bereaved, or they are discouraged, what is our natural inclination in respect to those in the body of Christ? Pull away which is exactly the opposite of the response that we should have. And so let me just encourage you that God has given you the body of Christ for your help, for your encouragement, for your, for your strengthening. And, and when you are discouraged and when you are struggling with temptation and, and when you are bereaved, that is not the time to pull away from the body. That is time to lean into your vulnerability and lean on others. The same is true for God. God who knows infinitely more than your brothers and sisters in Christ, who understands your struggles, worship Him in those times. So God's attributes comfort the psalmist, yet those same attributes condemn the wicked. Notice this with me in verses 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. Now, I wonder, when you read a verse like this, do you just take pause and say, mm, this makes me a little uncomfortable, right? I mean, David is calling down condemnation. Do you, do you look at this and you say, uh, that, that makes me a little uneasy? Let, let me remind us as we meditate, and, and you'll find these these passages all throughout the Psalms, you'll even find entire Psalms that are called imprecatory Psalms, right? The psalmist is calling down God's judgment on people. So let me remind us of a couple things here to, to frame our thinking as we respond to this. First of all, God is always just. He is patient. 
He is long-suffering, but he will ultimately judge evil. And this, in fact, should comfort us. You see, our world, on the one hand, wants an impotent God who doesn't judge sin, who just kind of winks at, who overlooks everything. But the fact is that that same image of God is really disturbing when people realize that if, if there is no God who is powerful and judges evil, if, if that's the case, if there's no just judge, that means evil goes unpunished for all eternity. And that's unsettling. What is wonderful to remind us is a God who is, is always just. Yes, he is patient. Yes, he is merciful. Yes, he is long-suffering. But in the end analysis, God will judge wickedness. I also want to remind us of this, that when you see the psalmist calling for this kind of just judgment, what you usually see is that it is linked not to personal wrongs, but the psalmist links it back to the character of God. He asks God to judge those who assault his character. Notice again with me verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, depart from me, bloodthirsty men. Why? Why? Verse 20. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Verse 21, I hate them, O Lord, who hate you. David is not really worried so much about, about personal slights. Isn't that when we want to get back at people? That person did me wrong. That person spoke evil of me. That person didn't do something right. Boy, I want to get back at them. I'm going to, I'm going to find me an imprecatory psalm. Right? But what David is saying is, God, these are people who assault your character. These are people who are raising their fist in your face. Oh, God, judge them. And this is what you'll see rather consistently throughout the Psalms when we see this kind of justice called for, this kind of judgment called for. It is those who are assaulting God. And it is a comfort to us to know that while we are called to repentance... And God's mercy and long-suffering allows opportunity for that. That if people continue to rebel against God, if people continue to assault Him, He will, in the end, judge them. God is a just judge. So, what is the response to this? Well, we find it really brought to a, a very concise lesson in verses 23 through 24. When we're called on to surrender... To God's infinite attributes. Isn't it interesting that this is both the conclusion and the culmination of the psalm in verse, say, in verse 23 when, when David prays this? Watch. Search me, O God. Now, do you remember how the psalm began? Go back up to verse 1. All right, so in verse 23, he says, Search me, O God. It's a, it's a prayer for God to search me. What does he say in verse 1? O Lord, you, you have searched me. He start, I mean, do you get that? He, he starts off by saying, Lord, you know everything about me. You have searched me. You have mapped me out. Like someone who thoroughly explores a land. And then he comes to the end and he says, I surrender, God. 
to what I know is already true. You know me thoroughly. Now, Lord, know me thoroughly. You have searched me. Now, Lord, search me. You see what he's doing? He is tapping into, he is leaning into, he is rejoicing in, he is responding rightly to what is true about God. See, God's infinite attributes are not something to be resisted or fought or hidden from. They're something to be welcomed, rejoiced in, something for which we should worship God. Lord, search me and know me. Try me and know my, isn't this an interesting word, anxieties. You see, God's infinite knowledge of us, His care on our behalf, His presence with us in all places answer our anxieties, our difficulties, our challenges better than anything else. I wonder this morning, when you are worried, when you are anxious, when you are fearful, what does your mind run to? Well, let me think, how can I resolve this situation? How can I, how can I connive and scheme and manipulate in such a way as to bring, the, bring about the will that I have? That will cause us further anxiety. You've heard me quote before one of the professors I had in college that said, you know, talking about anxiety, he, he, make, he would make the comment frequently, it takes a lot of energy to be God. But what the psalmist does here is he says, God, you be God. You be God and I'll submit to it. Search me and know me. My friends, when we are tempted to worry, when we are tempted to anxiety, when we are tempted to fear, the thing that our mind must run to is who is our God? The God who knows everything about your anxiety, your deepest, darkest fears, your deepest, darkest secrets. The one who knows that fear even better than you do is the one who has it under complete control. And so for us, we have, to, we have to preach to ourselves the character of who God is. We have to say with the psalmist, Lord, I know this is true about you. We must rehearse those attributes in our mind and we must hold fast to them. Worship God for who he is. My friend, the answer to anxiety is worship. As long as we are trying to connive and scheme and solve, we will be frustrated, we will be anxious, we will be worried, we will be fearful. But the antidote to that is recognizing who God is and His character. How well do you know your God? How much do you rejoice in the fact that He knows all, He's always there with you, and He can do anything? In fact. He has been doing everything for you since your conception. And you think he doesn't know? I think he doesn't know about that bill that needs to be paid. About that difficult situation at work. About that fear that you have concerning your children. About the health challenge you face. He knows that. He's intimately involved in it. 
And when our minds are tempted to fear and anxiety, may we be reminded to rejoice, to worship in who our God is. And this brings us to the gospel, does it not? Because what David is essentially saying here is, Lord, you already know me. I'm open. I'm an open book. Search me. Try me. Implied here is a response of prayer and repentance and trust. And so, my friends, this morning, as we behold who God is, as we think about His knowledge of us, may we be quick to worship God because of His infinite attributes. Lord, use Your Word in our hearts, not just this morning, but continue to use it in our hearts. Lord, You have searched us. You know us. Lord, so often we fight against that, we resist it, we struggle with it, but Lord, may we, may we yield to it. May we repent even this morning for our own lack of trust, and may we trust you anew. I'm going to give you a few moments to remain bowed before the Lord, to confess sin, to yield to Him as His Holy Spirit has spoken to you. Each time we hear God's Word, We are to respond to it. May we respond together in these moments. Lord, as we have stood this morning before your infinite attributes, considered who you are, we've been humbled, and we pray that you might continue to use these truths in our hearts as we confess, as we repent, as we stand open before you and ask for you to search us. We pray these things in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen.